Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, Park Church. I'm excited to share the word with you. Maybe there is a Spurgeon here. Wouldn't that be amazing if there's a Spurgeon here or maybe one of the kids in our children's program? I can't guarantee that, but I can guarantee that we'll look at the gospel this morning. So if you have a Bible or you have your phone, go ahead to turn and turn to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we'll spend uh, pretty much all of our time this morning as well. There's a little handout in front of you, just a little half sheet with some of the notes. I haven't preached in a while, so that might help you. I think it'll help me as well um, as we navigate this together. But Brad asked me to preach um, several weeks ago uh, here, the first sermon of the new year. And so, you know, I began to think about what would the Lord have me to preach? I began to read quite a bit and to pray and uh, read through the book of Philippians and came to this passage. And I just thought, wow, we can't, we can't look past this. I think this will just kind of encapsulate a lot of things for us. Uh, here today is the first Sunday of the new year, um, a, a Sunday where we kind of look forward together to what will this year bring, what are some goals we want to accomplish, what are some things we want to do, how do we want to grow as individuals, how do we want to grow as a church, and so I can think of no better time than to gather as a group of believers, but also to focus in on the gospel, which we will see here in Philippians chapter 3. So I think this is a great time of year, but I also think it's a kind of a dangerous time of year for us as Americans, for us as believers. You know, we start off kind of the holiday season with Thanksgiving. We gather with friends and family and eat way too much food. And then immediately after that, we, we no longer give thanks and we go and we purchase things, right? On Black Friday, we go out, we shop, and pretty much from Thanksgiving Black Friday on, we're kind of consumed with so many things going on in this world, things going on in our lives, family gatherings, church gatherings, purchasing things, acquiring things, decorating, all of those types of things. And we can just become so busy and so run ragged that we forget the true meaning of Christmas and really the true meaning of life. And so I hope that as we go to Philippians chapter 3, it'll kind of refocus us. Now, along with that, we have the greatest gift that we celebrated on Christmas, the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And then right after that, you know, this weekend, we're, we're focusing on the new year and our resolutions, and it can become very much inward-focused and self-focused. It's almost like our calendar has a trap. We have Thanksgiving, which, you know, is kind of like a, a Christian holiday. It had a lot of Christian virtues there. Christian principles, but it is an American holiday. And then right after that, we have Black Friday, which kind of switches our focus immediately. And then we have Christmas, and then right after that, we have the New Year's, which can kind of, again, change our focus more inward, more fleshly, you might say. And that's kind of the word that Paul uses here, which we'll get to. But before we get to the text in Philippians, I just kind of want to give you a summary of really Paul's ministry in his life. Um, he becomes a Christian uh, a little bit later in life. Before that, uh, as my kids would say, he was, a, he was legit in what he was doing, really as a religious leader. You might say he was an elite. He was really the leader of the leaders during his time. And then God gets a hold of his life and changes him completely. And what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 3 is really what was going through his mind and inside of his kind of conversion experience and his mindset as a believer. And so I think it's really profitable for us to see that. But before we get there, let me just give you a quick summary of his life, of his ministry. Immediately after his conversion, Paul begins to just fearlessly and blamelessly and boldly preach the gospel. And the Jews just hate that. It's really similar to almost in Jesus' ministry. As soon as he goes public, I mean, people are trying to kill him all the time. You just see that over and over and over again in Paul's ministry. Um, 
they sought to kill him. He was forced to flee several cities. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was imprisoned several different times. And he just goes from city to city to city. And at one point in his ministry, he says, Bound in the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So he knows what is coming. Just because of the culture and the time that he lives in the Roman Empire, I mean, they just hate Christians. Shortly after this, Paul is, he's eventually killed, but this is right after Rome burns, and, and uh, I think it was Nero who blamed the Christians and just slaughtered many, many Christians. And so there's just so much hatred during that time. But um, so eventually Paul, he continues to travel, and then he gets arrested, and then he, he's shipwrecked, and eventually as he's being beaten, the Romans kind of save him by arresting him again, if you can imagine that situation. Um, and then he's in prison. Uh, so the, the Roman commander, they send him uh, under heavy guard to the governor of Caesarea. After, this, after his case is dragged on without resolution for two years and two Roman governors, Paul exercises his right as a Roman citizen, and he appeals to Caesar. After an eventful trip, which included being shipwrecked in a violent storm, Paul arrived at Rome. And as he writes this book, as he writes Philippians, the apostle Paul was in his fourth year of Roman custody. He was awaiting the Emperor Nero's final decision in his case. And so I know there's been a lot of high-profile cases in the news in these past several years, and you can just, I think being in those moments, as you see those people who are in the courtroom and you can just see their life is right before them. Are they going to end the re spend the rest of their life in prison? Or are they going to be free? And what is the jury going to decide? How is all this going to play out? Maybe none of you, like me, have never been in that situation, but I think there's moments in life, maybe being in an accident or a, a diagnosis, where your life just kind of stands still and you think, what is going on? And life just kind of crystallizes in front of you and you think, what is important to me? What am I doing with my life? And how did I get here? And where do I want to end my life? It just, sometimes God has a way of doing that, bringing events into our life where it almost stands still. And I hope that today is one of those moments where we can just kind of clearly see, Lord, what am I valuing right now? Is this of good value? Is it of eternal value? Or are these things I should count as loss and do away with? So shortly after this, Paul is eventually released. After he writes the book of Philippians, he goes on to write one more book and do a little bit more missionary journey, but then he's arrested, and shortly he's killed after that. Not from COVID, but he is actually beheaded, um, is what happens to him. Uh, or that's the story, anyways, is that he was beheaded. And so Paul, at the end of his life, writes this book. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. People who are older in life, they have this clarity, this mission-driven focus of what is of value to us. And so that is really my goal. The title for this morning is New Year, More Jesus. Oftentimes we hear, New Year, New Me. And let me say, if you've got a new me, that's not really a good thing. We want, we want the Christian. We want the gospel. We want more Jesus is what we want. So let's look uh, together at verses uh, 2 and 3. Uh, I'll be on my first point there, the wise warning. As we get to the text here, he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. We who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he starts with this warning of this false circumcision. 
right? There's all these people going about, these false teachers that are just mainly focusing on the external. We kind of see this today. We can very easily fall into this trap of just, we go to church, we read the Bible, we, we take communion, we're baptized. All these very external, fleshly things. Our heart and others can tell us, man, that's enough. You are going to heaven. That's all God wants. He just wants the external. But that is, that's false. That's untrue. Not only is it untrue, it's actually evil. That's the way that Satan can work in our hearts and push us away from Christ. We need more of Jesus, not more of ourselves. We need more of him. We need more relying on him. We need more of his truth. So he says the true circumcision is who we are. Uh, earlier in Romans, Paul writes more about circumcision. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Later in Galatians, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Maybe that's not kind of the language that we use today, but really what he's saying is if, if you trust in yourself and your works, then the works of Jesus is of no value to you. You can't have both. When we stand before God, we're either going to stand with Jesus and we're going to say, he's done all the work for me on the cross. Or we're going to stand there with ourselves and we're going to present ourselves and say, look what I've done. Let me say that's a scary position to be in because you, can, you could never do enough. To kind of clarify that for you, think about Adam and Eve when they sinned the very first time in the garden. If God was to ever accept one sin and allow it to go and let it pass by without death and punishment, he would have done it on the very first one. And he didn't. He didn't do it with Adam and Eve. He won't do it with you. He certainly won't do it with, with, with me or anybody else. And so let's, um, as we look at the scripture, we have to find out what is true, what is false. That we, as we look at the world around us, really what he's saying in verse 2 is we need to keep an ever watchful eye. Ever watchful as we uh, decipher what is true and what is false. Watch out for the external influences, the teachers that you allow, the people that you listen to whether you consider them a religious teacher or not, but just the media that you take in, the people around you, how are they influencing you? This was a great warning to them because their culture and religion were interwoven with each other, that they had to constantly be on guard. Now, ours are a little bit more separated sometimes than that, but we need a warning because of our default setting as humans. Paul, as he was pointing out, was people like to trust in their flesh. Why do we like to trust in our flesh so much? makes me feel good builds me up look what i've did you know I, I read my bible every day i've taken communion i'm i'm a great wis, wit, uh, witnesser all of those types of things we can very easily build ourselves up again we see this back in the garden when adam and eve first sin what do they do right after that the image of adam and eve on all the cartoons all the flannel graph boards is of them standing there with fig leaves on right and that's kind of the image, but that's really not how God sent them out. That was their work. That's what they did. They went and they hid, and then they covered themselves. They worked. They wanted to do something to present themselves to God. Can you identify with that? Do you see that in your own hearts, that if you're not careful when you're sinful, you go to this work mechanism in your heart, like, I, I, you know, I, I sinned here, but if I go do this good thing, then I'll feel better about myself and God will accept me. We can very easily fall into that trap, even as a believer. We can kind of go back into that mindset. 
But as God comes back into the garden and he, and he sees his sinful creation, what does he do with them? He kills an animal and sheds blood. And just imagine Adam and Eve dressed in this cloak of animal skin as it's just dripping blood. I mean, imagine the severity of that. All the animals they had just named, and now God kills one of them, and they're just wearing it. Never seen that before. Never even thought of that before. And yet God in the garden is painting this picture that we need to be covered in Jesus' blood. From the very first time man sinned, God is beginning to paint this picture for you and for me to see. And we, God never diverts from that. He's always pointing us to this Savior who has done the work for us, a rescuer who rescues you from something that you can't rescue yourself from. And so let's not miss that. Um, the next thing that Paul says to us in verse 3 right here, he warns us of confidence in the flesh or this false confidence. He says true believers put no confidence in the flesh. Interesting how here we are at the beginning of the new year and most resolutions deal with the flesh. And now we're reading Paul is telling us, put no confidence in the flesh. So look at your resolutions that maybe you wrote down or in your brain. How many of them are so fleshly? How many of them are just focused on the external and have no eternal value? Uh, really what he's saying is that I've not come to a settled persuasion of trusting in the flesh. This is a believer. We've heard this in testimonies as people are baptized. You know, I look at my old life and I do away with that. It's loss for me. I put no confidence in that anymore. Not only do we have to be careful of the external influencing us, but Paul reminds us that our heart, our own heart is deceitful. Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And so as, our, as we go through life and as we set out our course on this new year, just don't be mindful of what you're bringing into your life, but what is your heart telling you? How do we decipher that? What is real? What is true? There's so much information that we take in whether we want to or not, just information is around us everywhere, that we need to go to this. This is what tells us what is true. This is what tells us what is real. God's word. And so as we wrap up this point, the wise warning, really what Paul is doing when he tells us, put no confidence in the flesh right after that, he lists out this, his resume. He's saying, if you want to see a religious leader, I was it. I was the one who checked all the boxes. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born into the right tribe. I had the right lineage. I did all the right things. For you, that might sound like I go to church. I'm a nice person. My good outweighs the bad in my life. I was baptized. I've taken communion. I've done catechism. All of those types of things. And so, as I said, he really has this elite resume. And what does he do with it? We're about to find out in verse 7 and 8. Let's turn there. Let's look there. This high cost to following Jesus. What is his response as he lists out all these things? Surely as he's writing this, some of these people are kind of comparing themselves like, man, this guy was pretty impressive. Surely they knew about Paul and his former life, and they, they hear this, and they probably heard a couple things they didn't know, and they thought, man, if I could be like that, I would feel pretty good about myself. And so in verse 7, Paul really sets everybody straight. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He just lists out all of his religious accomplishments, his personal accomplishments. And he says, all of those things 
were lost to me. I count those as lost. And really, he's using in this section all of these financial terms. He uses loss, gain, count, surpassing worth, acquisition, gainful asset, forfeit. All of those terms are used in this passage to describe his old life and his new life. His time without Christ and now his time with Christ. And as a believer, if you are a true believer at the time of conversion, I think this is the right mindset. This is the real mindset. If you've never had this, this clarity of thought where you look at your old life and you think, what was I doing? That is of no value to me. My old self, my old accomplishments. But Christ is of the greatest value. And what he has done is my gain. That's the idea. Notice the opposites that he's pointing out. The loss and the gain, the old self, the new self, the life and the death. And so that is uh, often what we see here in the world that we live in. Satan does a great job of really taking what God has set up and really flipping it upside down. You see this almost all the time portrayed in the world, and you see just kind of the breakdown of society. Typically, it's because God has set things a certain way, and Satan is now in the process of flipping those, and things just deteriorate. I mean, look at the family in America. Look at how, how men have kind of just been pushed down to the bottom instead of the leaders of the home and how that just can distort everything, so many things. Just come off of that one switch, that one failure where men are no longer the head of the home. So many things cascade off of that one failure, that one switch. We see this um, in other places. We see this throughout Scripture where Satan is just very slyly, just kind of switches things, just kind of turns them on their head. And so Paul very clearly here says, now I see that. I have a new eyesight. I can see the world in a different set of eyes, basically, new glasses, and I can see the truth and the reality. But he also uses this language here where he says, I continue to count them as lost. It's not like just a one and done thing, but as we follow Christ, there's this continuation of having the proper mindset and refining our thoughts. And that comes through reading the word. That comes through this. What things uh, were gained for Paul? All of the things listed on his resume. All of the things that were in his former life. Not only that, but then he says, I count all things as lost. There's this singular focus of following and growing in Jesus. In verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Not for the sake of his, himself, not for the sake of his family, but for the sake of Christ. And then he starts in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is in your viewfinder right now? When you have your perspective in your world, when you think about moving forward, even just this next week, you go back to work, maybe you're off a week of vacation. Now you go back to work, back to school, back to family life, back to the routine. What is in your viewfinder? What's in front of you? What, are you? what are you putting in front of yourself? What are the things that are of, maybe they're not even of value to you, but they're just there, right? We just get in a routine of life. I have four kids, four boys, and um, man, life is just crazy, right? I mean, it's all the, the rage, you know, you just kind of, you have all these ideas and like, oh man, if I could just draw out my life, this is what it would look like. And then you have kids and it's like, 
wow, this is crazy, right? And so, you know, the, as we think about that, maybe there's things in your life that just happen to be there just because you've kind of just evolved into that, your routine just kind of changes into that. Are those good things for you? Maybe right now as you're just sitting here, you can just take an inventory of your life of like, what do I want to change about that? What do I need to be intentional about when I follow Christ to just put in front of me? What's in your viewfinder? Because let me tell you, as, as Paul says here, Christ is of surpassing value. He surpasses everything. And right now we're in the sinful world and Satan uses everything he can to change our mindset and to keep us focused down rather than up, rather than to focus on Christ and how great he is. And so following Jesus does take effort. It takes work, not, not work to earn salvation, but because we live in a sinful world and we are sinful people, following Jesus, you've got to work to do that. Because literally, Satan has set up this world to put every obstacle in front of you. I mean, we've all been there before. We have great intentions to do something, maybe as simple as picking up our phone and reading our Bible, and yet all of a sudden we're off checking the weather, checking the news, looking at social media, and it just happens so quickly. And so uh, following Christ takes effort. What are those things that you're going to put effort into this year that are going to move you and your family, your spouse, and your children towards Jesus? I've heard it said that things that are worth doing are worth doing poorly in the beginning. And so don't have this grandiose mindset that you're going to just wake up tomorrow and you're going to be at 6 o'clock and you're going to have your pot of coffee and everything's just going to be like this sweet little, you know, coffee house and you're going to be in your little nook with your chair and just read your Bible and no one's going to wake up and the dog's not going to bark and your little kids aren't going to, you know, come and bother you. I mean, this is real life, people. This is, this is the way that it happens. And so within that, you know, let's be intentional. Let's make effort as we do this and understand that in the beginning, it's not going to be perfect and it never will be. You know, one of the things that I want to do uh, as a leader in my home is I want to, I just want to bring the word to my, my kids more often. And for me, you know, that looks like, hey, I want to be intentional about two times a week and, and make sure that at dinner time we're getting in the word and we're just doing something very simple. You know, I said we have four boys and I have this grandiose vision that one day we will sit down and we'll just have this great theological discussion and that is probably never going to happen until maybe they're in college or high school or something like that. But in reality, what that looks like is, is that as we're kind of finishing up dinner, I take out my phone or my, my Bible and I, and I read a passage. Sometimes I know what I'm going to read. Other times I'm like, Lord, help me find the right passage right now. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of very, uh, you know, impromptu. But here's the thing is that this is where the power is at. This is it right here. There's nothing special about this formula of if I do this, this, and this, then my kids are going to turn out good. No, it's just the saturation of God's word. Just put this into your brain, and, and the Holy Spirit will bring about fruit. And so that is one of my goals this year, is to just um, read, read several verses with my family uh, a couple times a week. Maybe take out my, my phone and we'll, we'll sing a song together uh, that I find on YouTube or one of the kids picks out um, and spend some time in prayer together. That's something that I want to do. Maybe there's something similar that you want to do that looks different in each of you, but um, I kind of like numbers, and so I just quickly looked up, you know, how many, how many chapters are in the Bible? Well, let me tell you, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And so maybe you're like, I've never read the Bible in a year. Well, let me tell you how you can do that. Five days a week, if you read four and a half chapters, 
Five days a week, you'll read the Bible in a year. Probably takes, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. Doesn't seem like a lot right now, but we all know that as life happens, 10 or 15 minutes just seems to get away from us very quickly. But maybe that's something you want to do. Maybe you've never memorized a chapter of the Bible. Oftentimes, you know, with kids in Awana or um, kids in ministry, we're like, oh, that's, that's for them to memorize Scripture. Man, that is just the beginning. You know, for us to be memorizing chapters of the Bible and setting that as an example. It's interesting. When you look at the, the persecution of the Christian church, they put in jail. They don't have no text. They're not getting no Bible. Just whatever's in here and what's in here. I mean, imagine right now you're put in prison for a year. And not an American prison. I mean, like, a real tough prison, right? No Bibles, no books, barely any food. You watch some of those shows on TV where that happens, and you're like, how do these people survive? I mean, just really in one of those tough situations. How long would you survive on God's word? How would you do without the text in front of you? What kind of songs would come to your mind? Something to think about. There's a high cost to following Christ, doing away with the old, and making a lot of effort as you move forward in following Christ. Again, not as a way to earn salvation, but because the world is set up, Satan has set this world up to put every obstacle in front of you. And so you have to work hard to, to continue to press forward. Next, the surpassing value in verses, uh, the second part of verse 8 and 9. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Really that word uh, knowing is this experiential, the way that Adam and Eve knew each other. That is what's talking about. Not just the head knowledge, although I would definitely make a strong case that to know Jesus and experience him, you need to know about him, right? I mean, but it doesn't stop there. I know a lot about a lot of people. Um, you know, my mind goes to Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers, and I could tell you some of those stats, and my sons, you know, they've really grabbed onto the Packers, thankfully, this year, and they're uh, becoming really loyal Packer fans, which has been fun. And they can tell you the defensive players and the highlights and uh, who we beat and who we lost to, and, you know, they know that we're playing the Vikings today and that um, Kirk Cousins has COVID, so we're kind of kind of thankful for that. But um, anyways, uh, we trust that he will get better. We, um, we think he'll get better, but... Uh, you know, all of these things, and I don't know any of those people. I really don't know any of them. I could walk up to Aaron Rodgers and, who are you? Right, if I got in his car, he'd kick me out and have me arrested. And so I don't really know those people. I've not experienced anything with them other than just seeing them on a screen. And so how do we know Jesus? How do we experience that? Well, it's interesting that Paul several different times talks about suffering. And yet here we are in America. We live in this free world and it's almost as if this freedom can be a trap for us. We're not really truly suffering. The government's not really coming down on us like we see in his time where we're really afraid for our life. And so we're in this interesting time that if we suffer with Christ, what does that look like? I think it's more than just the ailments of life. I think it's more than just the struggles of life. If you look at Paul's, uh, you know, his life and others who did great things for Christ, they were intentional about sharing the gospel and intentional about going out and doing hard things for God. They didn't just sit back. You know, they didn't just let everything kind of come to them. They were intentional. Kind of like this church plant. We're intentional. We're going into the community. This is what we're doing. I think that's part of that. But don't let that be the only thing in your life. Don't let, you know, that keep you from sharing with your neighbors and your friends and having maybe some of those tough conversations, but doing great things and suffering for Christ because you love him and you want to experience him. There's things that 
that you will only gain through suffering. And it's interesting, as you read pretty much all of Paul's writings, especially, you know, pretty much all of the New Testament, the second half of it, there's no way to get out of suffering. I mean, as he writes to Timothy, he's like, every good soldier of Jesus will suffer. It's just there. And yet here we live in this free society where it's like, I can just step back. I don't really need to suffer, right? And so how are you being intentional, not in a way of just bringing that on yourself, but are you just kind of sidestepping every, you know, difficult situation? And as I, as I say all these things, I forgot to mention in the beginning, you know, these are things that I need to hear too, so don't let, let that kind of cross you up, that I'm just standing up here as the perfect example, but I am not. Um, these are things that I want to see in my own life. As we get down to... Um, to verse 9 here. This is really, uh, if there's one verse that, in my mind, just it tells the gospel, it's right here. And that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen. And so my question to you is, where does your righteousness come from? If you had to give an account of your righteousness what would that look like? Is that all the things that you do? All the things you've done, the things I've mentioned before, the things that are kind of Christian culture values? Or is there just one thing at the top of that list? Jesus Christ. Right? Are you secure in him? Are you wholly, completely trusting and surrendering and bowing your knee to him? Is that it? If you're a believer here today, I just, I hope this text is an, an encouragement to you and kind of a refocusing time. If you're someone who's never trusted Christ, this is the gospel. This is what it looks like to, to follow Christ. You, you do away with your old life. There's no value there. You count it all as loss and you gladly bow the knee to Jesus and you surrender to him and give your life to him and you confess your sin and repent. That is what that looks like. Point four, the eternal perspective, verses 10 and 12, and then at the very end, 20 and 21. And that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Really what he's saying here is this, it's, a, it's kind of another business term or financial term. There's a joint partnership in his suffering. Paul's basically saying, if you want to follow Christ, you will suffer. There's just not a way around that. There's a cost to following Jesus. Mark chapter 8, these are Jesus' words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Later, Jesus kind of summarizes that even more shortly in just this quick little parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. I mean, imagine that. Imagine a field in Iowa, and you know that there's millions and millions of dollars worth of gold in that field. What will you do? Which a man found, he covered it up, and then in his joy, he sells everything he has and buys that one field. When we follow Jesus, we're putting all of our eggs in that basket. There is no turning back, right? I mean, Paul says later on, you know, look at me. If, if Jesus is untrue, I am a fool. 
But if I'm right, this is everything. And so that's the mentality as we follow Jesus is all or nothing. We can't have both and. That's what really tripped up the Jewish people was there. They were kind of taking all of these different things that their culture had and Jesus, and they were kind of just kind of putting that thing together, and it never worked. They were trying to make it work, but it just kind of went back, back to being self-focused and inward-focused. And so this, this joint participation in this suffering, what does that look like in the U.S.? What does that look like for you? Paul says in verse 12, I press on that I may lay hold for that which is Christ has laid hold of me. Again, as we have this effort, as we push forward, as we have these goals of following Jesus, let us not forget that at the very beginning of it, Jesus has taken hold of you. Like what a comforting thing as you go out into your life. And let me just say that each one of us in this new year will we'll encounter difficult things, things that we have no idea what God has written in their script of life. You know, maybe, maybe great news is going to happen to you. Maybe some of your deepest sorrows are going to happen this year. But let's not forget this truth, that, this truth that Christ has taken hold of you. I mean, imagine if, if your grip of Jesus was the only thing you had to trust in. Think about that. How long could you hold on to him? A couple hours? Maybe a day? But let me tell you, sin is going to come for you, and it's going to win at some point. And you're going you're gonna to fail. So uh, awesome to know, right, that Jesus is holding on to you, and nothing can take you out of that. As, as Paul is finishing up this chapter down in chapter, uh, verse 20, he reminds his people, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the, by the exertion of the power that he has risen uh, that he is even to subject all things to himself. And so as Paul kind of starts with this warning, and then he tells of the cost, and then he tells of the surpassing greatness of Jesus, and then he kind of lifts their head again and reminds them, like, your citizenship is in heaven. And this was especially uh, people important for the people in the Philippian church because they were actually, they were Romans. The Romans had taken over that area, but they weren't living in Rome, and so they had all the benefits of being a Roman citizen, but they weren't actually living there much like us here as we live in America, but our citizenship, our, our true citizenship is in heaven. And so be reminded of that as you go into the new year. John Piper, one of my favorite authors, uh, wrote this to, to just kind of simplify this. We live in a world where we can't do away with everything, right? We can't do away with money. We can't do away with food and job and um, houses. This is just the world we live in. And so the question then, as we look at it, is how do we how do we follow Jesus wholeheartedly and yet deal with things and life? So maybe this will help us. Piper writes, how does Paul make Christ look great? Here is the answer. By experiencing Christ as such a treasure that everything else in life is as nothing by comparison. I count everything as loss. Money as loss. Food as loss. Looks as loss. Friends as loss, family as loss, job and success as a loss, graduation as loss, in comparison with the treasure that Christ has become for me. So how do you make Christ look great in your life and then not waste it? Money is given to you so that you might use it in such a way that it will be plain to others that money is not your treasure, but Christ is. 
food is given to you so that you might use it in such a way that it will be plain to others that food is not your treasure, but Christ is. Friends and family are given to you so that you might use it in such a way that it will be plain to them that they are not your treasure, but Christ is. Computers, toys, houses, lands, cars are given to you so that you might use them in a way that it will be plain to the world that these are not your treasure, but Christ is. Let me close with Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Christ is worth it. He is of surpassing value. Following him is a high cost, and it'll cost you your life, but it is so worth it. Let's pray.